This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 163. Today we speak with Scott Oliphant about the Clark Van Til controversy. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey. We have another great episode lined up for you. This is episode number 163. We're broadcasting live to Machen's Warrior Children around the world from the campus of Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Let me introduce to you today our panel. We have Jared Oliphant, who is the Director of Admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome to the program, Jared. It's great to have you back. Thanks, Camden. Good to be here, as always. And uh, this is an elephant double shot today because I'm introducing uh, our esteemed guest is Dr. Scott Oliphant, who is Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology here at Westminster. Thanks for coming over, Dr. Oliphant. It's great you to have bet. you. You bet. Good to be here, Camden. Today we're going to be carrying on uh, one of our favorite topics. Uh, we all like to speak about apologetics and Cornelius Van Til, and uh, we're going to continue that today. We're going to try to clear up some issues uh, pertaining to a key event in Van Til's life and a key controversy that still pops up once in a while. Today we're going to be speaking about the Gordon Clark Van Til debate or controversy, however we want to call that, uh, set the, setting that in its historical context and then describing some of the apologetic and philosophical issues uh, pertaining there. But before we do that, we need to mention a few things of news. I've already mentioned that we are broadcasting live, and that's at reformedforum.tv. And there you'll find a calendar uh, that will keep you updated as to all of our programs and when we are recording. And you can follow along online and chat with us as the programs are taking place. So we like getting your feedback even live. So if you'd like to follow along, uh, visit reformedforum.tv and uh, you can keep updated there. Jared, do we have any full confidence tours coming up? For those that are listening live, I think there's one uh, in the near future, isn't there? Yeah, there are a couple in Canada that I mentioned before. Um, those are in March, uh, one in Vancouver, one in Edmonton. So um, yeah, the the cities that we're going to, Vancouver, Edmonton, there's going to be one in Nashville, in Pittsburgh. So if you're Texas. in in Texas. Well, by the time this airs, we have already been uh, de- already doing been it. But for those yeah. who are listening live, here. yeah, yeah, <laughs> an encouragement to listen live. Um, this upcoming week in February 18th weekend, we're going to be down in uh, the Dallas Fort Worth area, and um, Dr. Oliphant will be speaking there, and I'll be there um, doing a few things and then doing a Texas tour, which I'm excited about, um, traveling around to different colleges and and RUF groups. Um, What are some of those uh, schools uh, for people who might be listening and want to keep their eye open for you? Where are you going? Um, I'm starting out at Trinity down in San Antonio. That's uh, on a Monday. And then uh, the next day I'm going to Rice. Going to get together with the RUF group there. Mm -hmm. Uh, That Wednesday following, I'm going to go to Texas A&M. And Jonathan Brack, who has been on the show, is also going to be traveling around with me to Texas. Uh, He's an Aggie. And uh, so we're going to go to the the A&M RUF group. And then after that, we're going to get together with the UT Austin RUF group. And then uh, that following Friday, we're going to get together with the Baylor RUF group. So uh, really touching base with a lot of good schools down there. And Mm. and I always love going to the RUF groups and and seeing what college kids are discussing and, and their theological concerns. So should be yeah. good. I know there are a lot of reformed people down there. We, with our website statistics and whatnot, we can keep track of 
uh, the different places that people are coming from when they mm-hmm. visit our website. And I'm always astounded at how, uh, how many come from Texas. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose you'd expect it to be so because there's so many people living in Texas, but uh, it's still encouraging to see. And we know we have a friend, Andrew Moody, who's has a church right. in Houston. There's, and then there's the church in Amarillo uh, where you guys are from and many others from Westminster have attended there. So it's the a promised land is the, <laughs> close to heaven as you can get. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there are, um, there's a lot going down and uh, going on in Texas, so we're uh, excited to hear that you're going down there. And uh, if yeah. anybody, especially students, uh, are going to be in Texas, uh, look up Jared and, and try to find the schedule and uh, follow along and get in touch. He'd like to hear from you. Yep. So, um, are there any other bits of news that we need to mention before? Oh, there's just one other conference. There's a faith and science conference coming up, and I, this is just on the fly, so I forget the exact dates. But if you uh, search April on 8th, I think. April eighth, okay, so. that Tonight. weekend, yeah. it's um, I think a two day conference, yeah. and um, I think you're you're doing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vern Poitras is doing something. And that's again partnered with the uh, Discovery Institute. We did it last year, and it was just it, it was a great conference. Mm-hmm. It brought to light a lot of different issues um, in incredibly relevant with Hawking's book that's been out and just the continuing evolution debate that always rages out there. Um, Mm -hmm. Al Mohler's called a lot of attention to it. So yeah, that's going to be here in the Philadelphia area. Um, Do you know the venue? No. Okay. But around here. Yeah. Keep in touch about that. And we'll mention it, I'm sure on a few upcoming episodes. Great, great, great. Well, that's good to hear. And of course, our final mention, we always have to have an appeal and just remind people that we are listener supported. And uh, any help that you can provide for us is is much appreciated. We've just been able to buy some more video equipment, but we are still in need in order to be able to do what we want to do in terms of live audio and video. Uh, so we need a couple more cameras and and a few more pieces of uh, pieces of equipment. So if you're able to help, please visit us online at reformedforum.org/donate and help us to continue to produce and distribute these shows free of charge and to do so in uh, multimedia. Uh, thank you for your support of Christ the Center and all that we do at Reformed Forum. Okay, guys. Well, uh, today we are going to be speaking about uh, Cornelius Van Til and Gordon Clark, uh, discussing the controversy that happened in the 40s and 50s, uh, early on in the history of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And uh, we're going to try to parse some of these issues out because there's been much discussion over the last several decades about this debate, and uh, it has become more and more apparent over the last several years that there's still very much confusion about what the issues were and about what the positions of both men actually were and uh, what the dangers or benefits of either position may be. So today we want to parse out some of those issues and discuss a debate that's centered around divine incomprehensibility. And Dr. Oliphant, I'd like uh, to pass things to you just to explain a little bit about uh, what divine incomprehensibility was and what some of the salient features of, of this debate were. Yeah, um, let, me, let me just say a, a couple of things um, anecdotally. First of all, I, re- I remember my first discussion with Van Til on, um, on Gordon Clark because I'd read uh, Van Til on that and <clears throat> was very interested in his his take, and I, I remember where we were. We were actually taking one of his his daily constitutional two mile walks, and we were <laughs> we were on Rich Avenue where he lived. And I asked him about um, Dr. Clark. The first thing he said was, "I pray for Dr. Clark, and I wish uh, we had been able to get together um, theologically and philosophically because he said uh, Clark was a better philosopher than I am." Mm-hmm. So the first thing he mentioned was complimentary, and it, it was obvious to me. And this was later on in his life. You know, there was no bitterness with with Van Til, and he recognized Dr. Clark's uh, intellectual abilities. 
The second uh, anecdotal thing worth mentioning is I, I uh, had a chance years ago to um, to uh, talk to Dr. Clowney about this. We were at a conference together, and it was up in Minneapolis, and it was freezing cold, and, and the conference center was next to it, had a bridge crossing to it to a mall. After the conference was over, Clowney walked by and said, let's go take a walk. So for some reason, these, both these things happened on a kind of exercise walk. And um, <laughs> I, asked, I asked Dr. Clowney, I said, tell me about the Clark uh, Van Til debate. Mm-hmm. And, and his, uh, you know, Clowney was a very ironic uh, fellow, and um, so I was a bit surprised because he was, he was adamant that the, that the debate should have happened and that it needed to take place in, in the OPC for, for, the, for the sake of clarity. Now, my understanding, and I'm open to correction here from uh, any, any of your listeners, anybody out there, but my understanding is that the initial complaint which came um, with respect to Clark's ordination in the OPC, mm-hmm. it, was not a, it was not a trial. It was not a heresy trial, not anything like that. It was just simply a complaint, which is a formal procedure that you can lodge in the, in the OPC. came in the early 40s, 40s, and my understanding is it was, it was initially uh, given by a Stonehouse and Murray. That Van Til was not central in the discussion yeah, initially, um, and I think that's significant because it's it's coming from a, a couple of OPC ministers who have concerns. Their concerns are not of a trial nature. Clark was not on trial here, but it was that the Presbytery address some issues that they had concerns about, and the way to address that is by way of complaint. Um, and I think the second thing worth noting is that the complaint was denied. Um, it, it was not the case that the Presbytery upheld the complaint in mm. in, uh, in the OPC. So um, my understanding is that even after the complaint was denied, that was when Clark decided he would he would leave the OP. He, I think he was I think he was personally um, perhaps hurt by the complaint, or at least recognized that that this was not the place for him mm-hmm. or something. And I think that was I think that was a, a bad move. Um, he should have stuck with it, I think. But but the complaint was simply this, that there were areas in um, Dr. Clark's teaching, philosophical teaching, mm-hmm. that seemed to um, undermine a Reformed understanding of particularly of God's knowledge. That's, so the incomprehensibility is sort of a generic term that doesn't doesn't uh, accurately maybe get at what's what's going on there. Um, Clark was wanting to uh, address the relationship of the knowledge of God to the knowledge of man. Right? How do those how do those two relate? And in in Clark's view, there had to be some point of identity of content in God's mind and man's mind for knowledge to be consistent with God's own, for our knowledge to be consistent with God's own knowledge. There had to be identity of content in the mind of God relative to the mind of man. Hmm. Now, um, Clark, I think, expressed himself obviously in, in the, uh, in the complaint in such a way that, that the initial judgment was that this probably wasn't a problem. I think as time moved on, I want to be charitable here. I think as time moved on, Clark began to develop his views in a more extreme way. That were that was a way that was different from the initial um, discussion, uh, so that he be, I think he became more and more um, rationalistic. Mm-hmm. I don't want to call him a rationalist per se, like like um, Descartes or someone, but rationalistic in his emphasis. 
so that um, he began to emphasize things that were in the end de- detrimental. Um, in, in, by the time Van Til got his, his mind around some of this and began to go at it, he wanted to, he, he wanted to assert, what, which he has always uh, wanted to assert, that there is a relationship, a direct relationship between what God knows and what man knows, but right. that that relationship should be construed as analogical rather than a, a point of identity. Mm-hmm. Now, let me just say here, in, in terms of a caveat, the word analogy is inherently confusing in apologetics because Aquinas uses it, Butler uses it, Bovink uses it. Now Van Til picks it up from Bovink, and in each case it's used differently. Yeah, in my view, I don't think uh, Thomas and Van Til are the same here. I'm not convinced of that by any stretch. So, so I think when when Van Til uses analogy, um, he's just picking up what Bovink has. Said. And I, so I think what Van Til was doing initially was saying. Uh, wait a minute, Dr. Clark, in our tradition, see, when he picks up Bovink, he knows that Bovink is getting this from, you know, from the Reformed, Reformed scholastics. Yeah. So that there's nothing new here in Reformed theology going on in Van Til's own mind, and I think that's one of the things that surprised him. So I think, um, to, to put it this way, if I could, I think if Clark had been more attuned to the Reformed tradition, he would have been more able to ascertain what Van Til meant by analogy. Instead, what he did was he said, well, what this means then is the best we can have is an analogy of the truth and not the truth itself. Mm-hmm. And see, that's not the way analogy is being used. You can use it that way. But, but analogical predication in Van Til's mind, as in Bovink's mind, has to do with a fundamental distinction between the creator and the creature. That distinction is this. God is what he knows, and he knows what he is by virtue of his, um, his self-existence. That is, God is not a, uh, someone who gains knowledge. He's not someone who exists and then says, I will know, and I will know, and here comes right. knowledge. But as God, he knows everything exhaustively, everything. So he never gains. That's God's archetypal knowledge, according to the Reformed tradition. Mm-hmm. From that comes God's ectypal knowledge, that is, knowledge from the archetypal knowledge, that is theology, as the, as the scholastics wanted to say, theology then communicated to us so that we have ectypal. But our ectypal relates to God's ectypal, not to God's archetypal knowledge, because archetypal is his being. Mm-hmm. So what you have then in, in, in Revelation is God giving us his own thoughts, but as Van Til liked to say, um, it, is, it is God's interpretation now, the reason he uses the word interpretation, I think it's a good word, is because whenever we interpret something, we take the original and we give it some other aspect or meaning, mm. but it relates directly to the original. So it's an interpretation of the original, but not identical to the original. So what Van Til's saying by interpretation is when God speaks, and it is, God said and it was, that which is can't be identical with the mind of God or it would be God. So it, it is analogically related in that it is now God speaking out what he knows, and that speaking out is something now that we know. We know creation, but the creation that we know is not identical with what God knows in his own mind, even though it is from God's own speaking. Mm -hmm. So it's analogically related in that we know it as creatures. God knows it as God, and there's a difference there. So I think it may be, this is being optimistic, maybe this could have been resolved if it could have been emphasized that the point of identity in our knowledge in God's is in the thing 
and not in the respective minds. Mm-hmm. So the thing that we know is what God knows, but God knows it as God, and we know it as creatures. And that, that is the analogical relationship, which, again, is nothing new in Reformed thought. Analogy is a bad word. I like iconic better. If someone had said to Clark, all of our knowledge is iconic by virtue of the fact that we're image. So it's always, it always has the characteristic of dependency, of image, of God giving it. The original is there. The image then takes it. If we had thought in those terms, then maybe we could have avoided the confusion yeah. that's there in, in when we use the term analogy. But I don't know. I just think analogy is a bad term. Van Til picked it up from Bob Inc. Bob Inc. picked it up. I think, from Thomas and tried to rework it. So I think it's been inherently confusing, and it's best to throw it out. One thing that's helpful for me to understand is uh, the issue of, uh, as you've said, how we know. And everything we know is always wrapped and delivered by way of revelation. We don't know anything immediately. We don't know this world as God does. We don't know it exhaustively. We don't know it as original. Uh, But all of our thoughts are supposed to be reinterpretations of God's thoughts on a created level. Right. And, and, and uh, the issue for Clark um, is he wants to maintain that connection, uh, but in doing so, he creates some sort of a univicism so that the difference between God's knowledge and a human knowledge is simply uh, a matter of quantity. Yeah. It's, it's not a matter of quality. Degree. Yeah. But I can see his concern, and that's where we need to yeah. be better at parsing out what Van Til meant by analogy so that we yeah. can maintain a real connection yeah. and that human beings can know truly, though they don't know divinely. Yeah, see, I think that's right. And again, um, you know, we, we have the advantage now where we sit of, of you know, of seeing Muller's good work in, in mm-hmm. Protestant scholasticism, which, you know, uh, Clark had some access to, but, but cer- certainly not as much as Muller. But I think... If Clark had seen that, he would have seen that the reason, for example, the Protestant scholastics rejected the analogia entis of Aquinas, the analogy of being, is just because of the univicism that's inherent in it. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't have wanted identity of content at that point and would have been able then to construe in his own way, philosophically, another way to think about that. So maybe he wouldn't use analogy, maybe do something else. But the point is it's always derivative. It's always dependent. That's why I think iconic is better. It's always image knowledge. Knowledge mm-hmm. we have is always image knowledge. God's is never image knowledge. Yeah, yeah and of course, this gets into the whole issue of uh, brute fact. And for those who want to dig deeper, uh, you can look into the Bonson reader, Van Til's Apologetic, and, and read the discussions on uh, brute fact as it's related to this topic. But speaking more of Dr. Clark uh, and trying to place him more in context in, in the apologetic world and in the world of the OPC until he left for the uh, UPCNA, I believe it was, and then the RPCES when the UPCNA merged with the mainline church. Um, but Jared, you had a, a, an issue. You wanted to bring up the point on presuppositions, that there's yeah. actually uh, an issue here uh, with Clark are Clark and Van Til are the same on this? Yeah, and in, in the term really presuppositionalist, it um, I I'm going to ask you maybe how that got started. Um, and also there were a few that were included in the camp of presuppositionalists, and they had some differences. Um, that's that term as as we've commented before is still around today, and I I think we all agree um, those of us here that it's it's more unhelpful now than it was back then. And it's arguable if it was helpful back then too, partially because of the postmodern context and how presuppositions are just kind of understood now. So it's not that novel, but just wanted to ask who, who were included in the presuppositionalist camp and what were the differences between Van Til, Clark, Schaefer? um, And and how did that term even come come about? And a little anachronistically, how's it different from uh, postmodernism now? Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a huge topic. I, I, um, I, I agree. I think the term needs to be dropped uh, for, for a lot of reasons. And I think I've, I've said before, maybe on the, not on this program, but it struck me early on when I had, I had the opportunity, this was back in Texas, and Norm Geiser had come to town to speak at a luncheon. And um, so we, we chatted afterwards about apologetics for a little while. And, and um, he didn't know me at all. And um, so we, we were just talking. And he said, so are you presuppositional? Middle of conversation. I said, oh, yeah. And he said, well, are you Clarkian, Schaeferian, Vantillian, Carnelian? And on and on he went. And it, just, it was one of those things that just hit me. It's the first time I'd heard it like that. And I thought, well, there is some ambiguity here that needs to be clarified. Um, so as I've thought about that through the years, I've thought, let's just drop the term. Um, it's, you know, it's, it, and, and then you get into the, to the postmodern context that I'll talk about in a minute. I think it gets worse. But um, uh, f- fundamentally what you have is a kind of impetus uh, in Van Til. I was talking about this in class this morning. When he wrote his Metaphysics of Apologetics syllabus, the first one he wrote, which is now entitled Survey of Christian Epistemology, he used the term transcendental at that point. And that's kind of become a buzzword as well. I think that one's overused and overdone. But he used that because what he was trying to do was communicate in the context of idealism, uh, particularly post-Kantian idealism, communicate a particular method of understanding how to defend Christianity. Now, Kant had his own transcendental dialectic, transcendental logic, et cetera, and the critique of pure reason. And all he was getting at there fundamentally was whatever experience you have, whatever fact you have, what are the presuppositions there that give it its impetus? What gives it its possibility? And Van Til said, you know, it's not a bad way to think about the kind of questions we ought to be asking Christianity. So um, for Van Til, transcendental was the impossibility of the contrary. But transcendental meant ferreting out the presuppositions behind a given approach or fact or experience or anything else you want to have there. So he talked a lot about presuppositions. Now, um, in, in my view, um, uh, as far as I remember, in print, I think it was discussed uh, previous to this. I think Mitha brings this out in the biography. But in print, um, presuppositionalism came out as a, as a critical term for Van Til in the, in the 40s, a Buswell article, the father of presuppositionalism. You know, called something like that. And Van Til was happy enough to take the term on. So it's not something he would have lived or died for, but he took it on because that's kind of the way things evolved. Mm-hmm. He wasn't that interested, I think, in, in just the way that the, the thing was termed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the terminology at that point is relatively unimportant, and, and that's why I think it's easy enough just to, just to drop it and say something else. But what you basically have in, in any kind of presuppositional approach, here, here I think would be some, uh, some, some standard uh, – uh, tenets that all would agree, Schaefer, Carnell, Van Til. What you have is a kind of modified look at the at the uh, at the theistic proofs. Um, some as hard as an absolute rejection. I think that's more where Clark would be because of the empirical nature of of Thomism. That is, that you have to start. It's not empiricism, but you have to start with the empirical. Yeah. Clark wouldn't have wanted that. Up to Van Til, who says they're they're objectively valid. There is a proper formulation, but they're not formulated historically in the right way. Um, uh, Schaefer, on the other hand, wanted to talk about uh, presuppositions as kind of a pre-evangelistic endeavor, working at uh, God is there and he is not silent, um, the God who is there, you know, those kinds of things, so that you can then bring in at some point uh, the gospel. And, and Schaefer has this illustration. By the way, I'd commend Dr. Edgar's article to you, the 1995 Westminster Journal, comparison of Schaefer and Van Til. There's nothing better out to do that. 
uh, Edgar studied under both. But basically, Schaefer has this view where the naturalist has half the orange and he's got to get the other half the orange. And Van Til would say, you know, we can't think in those terms. Whatever they have that's true, it's not half the orange because they don't, the whole orange is rotten. So you've got to revive the orange and get, and, and get that up to speed before you add any part. So he, he would not think in terms of half and whole. Um, I think in terms of methodology now, um, uh, Van, Van Til and Clark were so close. I think they were very close in terms of the, what they wanted to do. That is, there was an impossibility of the contrary approach in Gordon Clark and a supposition of the, uh, of the absolute necessity of the Principia, of, of revelation and of our doctrine of God. Those were both there in Van Til and Clark. But I think because I think now... If I can be critical, I think because of Clark's, in my view, overemphasis on rationality and the way he defined that, that, that he gave that an objectivity that I think eventually served to undermine what he wanted to do in his, in his good emphasis on the authority of Scripture. I think, he, I think one had to eclipse the other, and I think the rationality view eventually eclipsed the revelational view. Now, I, I think in, in my own, you know, looking back on it where I am now, I think what you have is a much more radical approach in Clarkians than you do in Clark. Um, just like you have a much more radical view in Kleinians than you do in Klein. Sometimes the disciples, you know, miss it and, and begin to, to hmm. propagate things. Having said that, I think as Clark progressed over his lifetime, I think he became more radical and I think got, got to places that he shouldn't have gone to because of his, uh, his emphasis on, on logic. Hmm. Yeah, and just to to read a quote um, in the Bonson Reader, Van Til's Apologetic by Greg Bonson, um, when he's describing this whole debate, um, there's there are a couple quotes. I'll just read one on page six sixty nine, and this is coming from Clark and uh, Clark's. I guess it was an article, um, but how may I know the Bible is inspired? Um, but Clark says this. He says, "Strange accidents do indeed occur, and no proof is forthcoming that the Bible is not such an accident." Unlikely, perhaps, but still possible. Mm-hmm. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but clearly Van Til would not agree with, with such a thing because of of his approach to the impossibility of the contrary. Maybe that's where he has a nuance that's different from Clark. Yep, yep. I think that's right. And I think the longer Clark began to uh, postulate these things, the worse it got. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, there's a helpful chapter on this subject in Bonson's more recent work, uh, Presuppositional Apologetics: Stated and Defended. And uh, he tries to parse out the differences of uh, presuppositional methods mm-hmm. among them all, and I found that to be a helpful chapter. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the postmodern context, uh, is this the essence of Van Til? Is Van the essence of apologetic uh, presuppositional apologetics just that everyone has their own presuppositions? Of course, nothing else <laughs> needs to be said. Yeah, um, that's what you tend to get, and I think it's unfortunate that it's it's gone that direction. Um, I've, I've even heard it around here, you know, in the halls of Westminster. So I, I think it needs I think it needs to be uh, corrected and corrected um, yeah, quickly. That Van Til was not saying. Sometimes people presuppositions. Oh, you have your presuppositions, and I have mine. Yeah. That's so obvious it doesn't even need to be stated, and certainly you can't build a method on that. But that's kind of the way it's gone with certain post-conservative, post-modern types. And let me, let me just try to say it this way. I, I, I've been told, or it's, I've heard it said in my presence, um, that when Van Til says there are no brute facts, what he means is every fact is interpreted. And, oh, isn't that just what 
post-conservative, post-moderns are saying is that we all have our facts that we interpret, so we all live in our subjective world. Um, that is the opposite of what Van Til wanted to say. Uh, the opposite of brute fact is not interpreted fact. The opposite of brute fact is created fact. Or, if I could put it this way, the opposite of brute fact is God-interpreted fact, as yeah. I was saying earlier, such that God has creation in mind from eternity. When he speaks, he speaks it into existence, but the existence of that is not identical in any way to the existence of what he has in mind. It's an interpretation of what he has in mind. If it were identical, it would be himself. So it can't be identical in that sense. So what Van Til was trying, the point he was trying to make, the reason he used brute fact, because it was, it was uh, replete through the scientific literature during also the time Bose he was Also, Bose and Pugh and others, the, What's that? the British absolute idealists were using the word as well, so the, he, he was and, very familiar with it. And them. the reason was because science was using this yeah. and saying, what we have to do is take these facts and give them the meaning. We have to understand them and interpret them in order for them to be what they are, and this is what's led to some scientific anti-realism. But what Van Til was saying was, no, it's God created, God interpreted, and our responsibility is to think God's thoughts after him. Well, what are God's thoughts? God's thoughts are those things that are in the world right now, and we come at the world as God's world and understand the world in the way that God has made it. So it, it was meant to produce exactly the opposite of what postmoderns want to say. It's meant to produce a, a, a biblical notion of objectivity. The fact is there. You're connected to the fact by virtue of the fact that God created you and created the fact, mm-hmm. and he's brought the subject and object together. So it's an objectivity, not a subjectivity. So we, we should never say that Van Til taught that there are no brute facts or only interpreted facts, and therefore we all are presuppositions. That is so far from what he was trying to do that it really misses the boat altogether, I think. I think one of the, the other issues that, that really distinguishes Van Til from a post-conservative or, or post-modern type of approach is the presuppositional method. This is going to maybe – people. This may be uh, misunderstood when I say this, but it, the presuppositional method is not foundational for Van Til. It's a consequence of his doctrine of God and then, therefore, also the creator-creature distinction. Yeah. And that's why he uses the transcendental method, because being creatures, we cannot judge God or stand over him like we can stand over a scientific experiment. Yeah, that's We have right. to ask the question, what are the necessary preconditions of X, Y, and Z? Yeah. And that's because we're creatures, and that is because God is who he is. Yeah. And it's also because we know as Christians what the necessary preconditions are. So we go into the discussion with told. that idea because yeah. God has shown us mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, I was, I was saying uh, to, to the class this morning, I mean, this, this, this bears on this even if uh, tangentially. The whole discussion about whether or not Mason was a presuppositionalist is completely anachronistic because my answer is no, of course he wasn't because Van Til wasn't. Because nobody in the 30s was presuppositionalist. What Van Til was doing at that point what he's doing the rest of his life, was articulating Reformed theology in the context of apologetics. Yeah. And there was no ism that, that he was attaching to it. What, Van, what uh, Machen understood from Van Til is, after seeing him teach at Princeton, teach apologetics, is we've got a guy here who can do, unlike, I mean, Machen knew that. He said, I can't do this in this way. This isn't my emphasis. I, I can deal with Christianity liberalism yeah. in a way that Van Til can't. But he can deal with apologetics in Bart in the way that I can't, Machen right. would say. So he knew what he had in Van Til with the kind of genius he knew he knew he needed at Westminster. So, of course, he wasn't presuppositionalist, but he knew that what Van Til was doing was the application of Reformed theology in a way that was different from what Van Til had gotten by, uh, from William Britton Green Jr. at Princeton. And that was significant in Machen's own mind. So I think we need to avoid that kind of, you know, iconic view of presuppositional is all these isms are not that helpful it's christian theism 
is, is all that there is in terms of isms. And so I think we need to think of it theologically and not philosophically. Could we be so bold as to say that someone wanting to be a consistent, reformed theologian should follow in the steps, uh, the apologetic steps of Cornelius Van Til? Yeah, well, I've been bolder. I've said if your theology is reformed, you must necessarily be reformed in apologetics. <laughs> or, you, nice. or you've got some significant <laughs> yeah. inconsistencies there. And by the same token, I say to my class, if, you're, if your theology is Arminian, you can't follow this approach. I need you to understand it because I'm teaching it, but you can't follow this approach because it presupposes the reality and the truth of Reformed theology. So Reformed theology demands Reformed apologetic. Arminian theology demands Arminian apologetic, and on you go. And I think Van Til saw that. He, to him, that was so obvious that he didn't <laughs> state it, obviously. And I think the rest of us now coming behind him need to state it more explicitly. Now, is this a, uh, an elevation of a man? or Because uh, we, we, we like to use his name oftentimes or is it more of a shorthand for saying we're trying to be consistently reformed? Yeah, it's it's the latter. You know, and and I, I tell I tell my class I think it's in any any time we talk about Calvinism, Arminianism, Vantel, all we're saying is here are some people who typify the kind of approach that we think is biblical, and so we can use that as a kind of shorthand to get people into the discussion. But certainly Van Til wouldn't have wanted to be exalted that way. He told me numerous times, he said, I'm just a pygmy who stood on the shoulder of giants. I, you know, I'm a little guy who stood on Bob Inc. and Warfield's shoulders mm-hmm. and Kuiper, and I could see a little bit further because I was standing there, but he, he didn't see himself as any kind of uh, yeah. a great um, changer in that way. He, wasn't, he was not a revolutionary yeah. in that way, and I don't think he saw himself as wanting to be that. On a related note, uh, this is germane to the discussion and the uh, the controversy between Clark and Van Til, or we should say the Clarkians and the Van Tillians in the church. It wasn't necessarily a one-to-one controversy. It might, it might be cast that way, but it got more heated among the followers of the two men in the Presbytery. Uh, but this issue is that of uh, Trinitarian theology. Um, what are some of the differences here? Uh, we, we oftentimes speak of person or hypostasis in, in our discussions of the Trinity. Uh, what were Clark's views of personality? How did he go about defining a person, and how might that differ uh, from Cornelius Van Til? Yeah, I, I think toward the end of his life, you know, he got more and more enamored with uh, the kind of rational uh, uh, process and, and um, wanted to find wanted to define persons as kind of a collection of propositions. And because of that, as I say in my book, Reasons for Faith, um, in his book on the Incarnation, he says we just need to go ahead and admit that Christ is two persons. Now, I I think, you know, you have to look at that um, and wince because in the the history of 2,000 years, there's a reason why neither Catholic nor Protestant would ever go there, that 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 is is the definition of heresy when you start to move into – Nestorianism or or Eutychianism or any of those kinds of Christological isms, you're in trouble. Clark moved there. And, you know, he should have been more careful in that. He should have, I I think, I think the lack of, I shouldn't, I think the emphasis on philosophy, the lack of historical understanding of of theology at that point did him in. Um, Van Til used the the phrase, as we all know now, uh, one person, three persons. He used it uh, very, very seldom. It was not a mantra for him. He wouldn't have gone to the mat for it. He was making the point that Hodge and Bavink make, which is that the one essence of God is not an impersonal, abstract essence. And um, as you've said on your program, and I think your listeners already know, Tipton's done the job of showing how this is uh, consistent and how you can make this sort of claim. Van Til was not trying to be 
crassly contradictory. It was interesting when I when I first came here in 1991, about a month into my job, unsolicited in the mail comes a pamphlet, uh, Van Til, uh, the man and the myth, <laughs> and it was uh, you know it was a a, a a pamphlet sent by the author that was uh, meant to to blast Van Til and to show how he was heretical. Um, it was it was it was superficial. It was not very. It was not done very well. A pamphlet. Um, yeah, it was a pamphlet. was superficial and yeah, oh. pamphlet superficial. And you know the interesting thing is, I think people should recognize this. Um, a pamphlet like that um, of necessity undermines the the Church of Jesus Christ. If Van Til was a heretic, the OPC would have picked it out. They weren't. You know, they weren't dumb on these matters, and, and that's for the church to decide. And the church knew what Van Til was teaching. And um, his, his position, as he even says in Intro Systematic Theology, it's, it's just following along on the same kind of concern that Hodge had, the same kind of concern that Bovink had. So there was nothing that radical about it, and he wasn't trying to be crassly contradictory. Now, when Clark comes along and says Christ is two persons, I think we yeah. have real issues there. You have now, other now issues, too, with... Um Defining a person as a collection of propositions, then you need to go in the direction of having real distinctions in the Godhead. If there really are three persons, there must be distinctions. And if you've taken Clark's definition, there ends up being some impersonal essence of which the persons don't exhaust or overlap. So you don't end up with a full divine exhaustion. You don't end up with a, a perichoresis is a technical word. And so there is a portion of the sun that is not known or, or um, not indwelt by the Spirit and by the Father. And you can make that, that statement for any, com- any combination among the yeah. members of the Trinity. Well, once you move that dire- in that direction, Christology, you're going to move that direction in, in the Trinity. Even if you didn't say exactly. it, you would have to hold it. So, I, you know, I think, this is a, I think this is a product of, I think Clark had the right impetus. He, he was going at it, you know, basically, generally the right way. But once you pour you know, a sort of absolutistic view of logic. That is a view of logic that the church, I'm not saying Van Til, the church has never held since its mm-hmm. creedal development. Once you pour that into your um, theology, trouble looms. And it, and it did, and it does. Uh, I think Muller even emphasizes this when he talks about a kind of move toward rationalism, especially with respect to natural theology and people like uh, Bartholomew Keckerman and Alsted and others. That, that move came because logic was given a place in the theology that it wasn't given historically, mm. particularly in the writing of the creeds. So again, if, if Clark had just looked at the creeds and say, why in the world would people say that Christ is one person? With two, What are they doing here? If he had just looked at that more carefully, I think he would have had to dispense with his, his understanding of logic. Uh, Jared, you had some issues of uh, or questions about logic, and we've, we've spoken before about logic in relation to apologetic method. Mm-hmm. What are some of those issues, and how did they pertain to this controversy? Yeah, just wondering, um, Clark had a, we've talked about it today, but uh, a specific, specific view on logic and how it relates to um, knowing anything. And, you know, this, it always um, brings up the question of how is logic and God related to each other? Um you know, some people go so far as to say that, you know, God is confined by logic, but that's okay because it's part of his character. And yeah, my, my general question is how, how are we supposed to think about logic? Um, and even, even in saying that, I know that it, it's defined in a hundred different ways by a thousand different people. Um, but 
can we compare Van Til and, and let's just say Reformed theology's approach to the role of logic and the use of logic in theology and philosophy even um, compared to, to Clark? Yeah. Yeah, I do some of this in Reasons for Faith um, and uh, go through it and basically borrow it from the scholastics. I borrow some of it from Turretin, whose exposition I think is pretty good on that. So again, whatever I'm going to say is not is not new in, in terms of Reformed theology. It's, it's basically what we've, what we've held historically. But um, just to put it in the negative, I don't know what God's logic would be if he had logic. Because if logic is the science of inference, God doesn't have any because he doesn't infer anything. Well, maybe it's just the making of distinctions. Well, how does God make distinctions in eternity relative to exhaustive knowledge? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Because we hold to God's simplicity. That is, there aren't any parts in God. No. So we... we the fact that there are no part, we still understand God to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. With real distinctions in the Godhead. But yeah, the, but yeah, what does are... that look like in terms right. of our understanding? And see, what the church has said is you can't get there from here, um, that, that there's going to be a mystery. Van Til mentions in, uh, in Intro to Systematic Theology, he quotes from an uh, article of uh, Clark's from the Evangelical Quarterly, where Clark claims to have solved the problem of sovereignty and human respo- God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He solved it. It's not a mystery. Well, I think when you begin to go down that road, um, you're getting yourself uh, close to, I think, a secular understanding, a pagan mm-hmm. understanding of what logic is meant to do. Because whenever you have the creator and the creature meeting in any way, there's going to be mystery. So better to use Bavink's line, all theology, all dogmatics is ultimately a mystery, than to use Clark's line in the beginning was logic and logic was with God and logic was God. I, I don't know what that would mean in the mind of God. He doesn't mm-hmm. infer anything, and, and whatever distinctions are, they're, they're identical to him. So what the church has done, again, historically, and the Reformed were, were the best at this, is understood that, that, that God's own revelation, you know, it's like Calvin, see everything through the spectacles of Scripture. God's own revelation delimits how we can use logic and and this is important, we must use logic. We have mm-hmm. to think that way. God has created us to think that way, but he defines the limitations and the parameters of how we think. So how does our logic relate to God's own thinking? Well, as Van Til says, it's analogically related. It's a created way to understand that God is, as Van Til says, absolute rationality, that he alone is coherent, that he alone is absolutely consistent. But what that consistency and coherence looks like, we have no idea, mm-hmm. we, except as God reveals himself. So God says, think this way, not that way. Think God's thoughts after him. So this is a room and, and, and not a car, and we're thinking logically in that way. We're making distinctions. We have to think that way. Um, I, I heard Sproul give a talk one time on transcendental argument for the uh, impossibility of the contrary, the logic uh, of the law of non-contradiction. It was a fine presentation. No one would disagree with it. But even philosophers understand that logic if it has no foundation or basis, mm-hmm. the best thing that you've got is a social convention. Mm-hmm. And Bonson pointed this out in numerous places. So, so what gives logic its foundation? Well, God does. God's created us to think in a particular way, and he's set the parameters and, the, and, and limited how we think about those things. So, for example, when the church is working through a doctrine of the Trinity or a doctrine of who Christ is, the first thing that it does is not say whatever we say has to be uh, amenable and conformable to our own rules of thinking. The first thing the church does is say, we've got to take what, what Scripture says, even if we don't have any laws that help us bring all of that together. Now, that doesn't mean the church is after bold, crass contradiction. 
but it does mean that the church is going to have to set out paradoxes, two teachings side by side that we're not a, we don't have laws of thinking that allow us to bring those things together neatly. And the church yeah. says, look, if this is what God says and this is what we have to affirm, mm-hmm. yeah. that's logic. See, that's the way you think about logic. So that revelation always takes precedence over over everything. And then along with that, we must necessarily and always do think logically. And just related to that, you touched on um, transcendental argument for God and impossibility of the contrary. And when I'm seeing um, these apologetic discussions, particularly in the light of people who kind of have a sense of Van Til or even know him pretty well, but maybe don't have all the categories, the two things that I constantly see are um, that the transcendental argument for God is this silver bullet bullet philosophical argument that is just the Christians got it. And if you do that, then you're in, you got it. Um, that's the truth of Christianity. That's number one. The other one is some people who get a bite of Van Til, but can't go as far as affirming the impossibility of the contrary, because either they've read too much analytic philosophy and they have a, a um, abstract notion of impossibility. And so they, they come to it with that thinking, you know, th- we got impossibility. And so let's tweak Van Til based on that. So um, I guess my, my question would be, how are we supposed to think about the transcendental argument? You mentioned a little bit earlier on, um, you know, the post-Kantian mm-hmm. definitions of that. But also, how are we to think of Christianity or, or just the impossibility of the contrary as, as a concept explained to people who are philosophically aware? Yeah. Well, I, I think, number one, as I was saying, I think transcendental argument is overstated and overused more often than not. Um, it was only a tool for Van Til, just something he picked out yeah. to use to explain something about Christianity. Um, there, there's nothing silver bullet about it. Anybody can use it. As is pointed out to me in class over and over again, why can't Islam use this? They can if they want to. Not as necessarily, I said, though. I mean, we, when we start to really dig in, we can start to get into issues of their monism and what. I'm not saying they. I'm not saying they have truth. I'm saying as a methodological <laughs> approach. Anybody oh, yeah. can say impossibility of the contrary, and my view is true, and everyone else is false. Now, that, there's nothing magical about that. Um, but like every other method, like every other approach, only the Christian can use it properly because yeah. only the Christian has the truth of the Christian position. So what Van Til was trying to say, I think, was that um, we know as Christians— I mean, I, I say this to, to Sunday school classes. You know this as a Christian— that if you believe in Christ, if you have faith in Christ and understand the Bible to be what it is, that anything opposing that view is false. You know that as a Christian. It's not just that Christianity is true for me. That's the subjective relativistic way to think. But Christianity is true whether I believe it or not. And now, because God has given me faith, I do believe it and understand it to be true objectively, even if I don't believe it. So the impossibility of contrary is if someone opposes Christianity— it is impossible for them consistently to live and think that position. That's true only for Christianity. So in that sense, transcendental method only has its proper application in Christianity, as does any, anything, anything else. else. Yeah. yeah, But it doesn't mean that someone else can't say, hey, I've got impossibility of the contrary. Michael Martin tried to do this, you know, transcendental argument for the non-existence of God, the impossibility of the contrary on logic. Well, I use that in class to show this. He's using a transcendental argument. But the content of it is false. So the structure of it is transcendental. The content is false, yeah. just like Kant. The structure of it is transcendental. The content of it is false. So there's nothing magical about it. It's just a tool to promote 
people uh, to pro- promote the view that Christianity is true, everything else is false. And it's really that simple. Mm-hmm. And you know that going in. So somebody says, well, you could never use this because you can't, you can't look at all the false positions. Well, you don't need to. Once you know the true position, by, by virtue of God's grace and what he's revealed, once you know that, you know that anything that opposes it is false. And therefore, any position you go into in, in a discussion that opposes Christianity, you know from the outset is going to be false. Mm-hmm. And so you can, you can begin to work at it in that particular way. Mm-hmm. You need to know that going in. That was Van Til's point. Know that going in. It's not that they have half the orange. You're going to try to give them the other half. It's not half true. Half. Mm-hmm. It's false from the, from the beginning. And you need to get at that even if there are points of um, truth, formal truth that are there in the position. So I, I think it's overused. That's another one that I, I think I talk about it in class, and I think it's useful if people know the terminology and the concepts behind it. But I think we could do without it, and we, it wouldn't hurt the position. Now, speaking of uh, one of the big issues that comes very practically to many people is the issue of uh, scriptural authority. And uh, this is very much related uh, and a part of this controversy. Uh, maybe not as a, an immediate point of debate between Van Til and Clark, but it's a consequence uh, whenever we speak of divine and human knowledge. How can we come to know things? We know them through revelation, and uh, Scripture is God's Word. It is revealed to us. Um, can we trust our Bibles? Does analogy allow us to do that? Or, as Clark or Clarkians might want to say, are we left in, on an island separated from, from God. Can Scripture actually come to us, or is it, uh, is it uh, separated from God in his own truth? Yeah. Well, I think, again, you know, th- these, are not, um, these are not new questions. I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm not the historian, obviously. Truman could get in here and, and Jeff Jew and talk about this for hours on end. But it seems to me if, if we understand that those questions have been asked by greater minds than ours and have been worked through by greater minds than ours, then I think we can begin to see at least that people have dealt with these things in depth. We don't have to accept what they've said, but it's not, it's not coming to us de novo. So the reason that the reform talked about God's archetypal knowledge and then God's ectypal knowledge was just to make sense of the fact, help make sense of the fact, that, that we do get God's revelation, that it comes to us from God himself, and that when we get that, we get that as God's own knowledge, but, as Calvin says, in a condescended way. He stoops, he lisps to us in order to tell us who he is and what he requires of us. And, and, and unless, this is why the Reformers were adamant about the first thing that we must grasp is that this is God's word. Yes, it's given in human form. Yes, we can think about human. But if you think the human form gets you to the God's word, then you're in trouble. And this is the way it's gone historically in liberalism and other ways. You come at it as God's word. And Clark was adamant about this, especially early on. He shouldn't have gone the direction he went. But this is God's word. You come at it in that way, and you recognize it for what it is. And then in doing that, you see, as Van Til says, you can think God's thoughts, but after him, Mm -hmm. after him. Uh, receptively reconstructive, not creatively constructive in the way that Van Til liked to put it. Um, speaking along those lines, what, are some of the, what is the role of um, philosophical systems or philosophical inquiry or even uh, extra-biblical data, those sorts of things? As Reformed people, understanding a, a good doctrine of God, how do we go about incorporating things we might encounter in this world? But how, how do we go about doing that properly without yeah. making them an ultimate authority or the, uh, the ultimate interpreter. Yeah. 
Whew, there's a there's a show for you. Um, <laughs> Can I one one example just and we don't have to touch on this at all, but um, you know the way that somebody like Gary Habermas approaches um, you know quote unquote evidences for the resurrection. It's always well the archaeological archaeological data says this. Um, the experts out there say this, and so I don't want to answer your question, but um, just trying to think of okay, we do need to to look at what happened historically yeah, and yeah. Um, some, some positive support, but maybe where, what's the role of that in, in what we're doing? Yeah. Well, I think, um, I, I think again, um, as, I, um, as I've said before, when I was asked one time to speak on apologetics to a group they wanted to hear about Van Til, I entitled the, uh, the, the talk, Why I'm an Evidentialist. And the reason I did that, of course, was to be provocative, but also to say that that everything serves as evidence for God's existence. Yeah. So we can use all of this as long as we understand it within the right context. My faith does not depend on whether or not someone finds an empty tomb or whether or not you find Jericho or whether or not this is testified in archaeology. But if it is, then that's supportive material, and why wouldn't you use that? You can certainly use that, but not as the ground right. of what you're saying but as a, as a, as a confirmatory uh, support in the way the Westminster Confession talks about it in 1.5. Uh, you know, there are these, uh, there are some external indicia, as they like to put it, external indicia that would point to these sorts of things and shouldn't be afraid to use those as long as Van Til says, as long as you never leave your own ground, because if you leave your ground, then you drown. Um, the, the, the question related to that, I think on the, on the, on the philosophical side, the, the way I, the way I understand it um, is in, 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 at least in my own reading of philosophy and the way I, I've seen it um, articulated by, by Muller and others in, in uh, Reformed Scholasticism is once, once you are grounded theologically, and that, I don't mean to say that that's a definitive point and then you never move, but, but once you sort of have your theological parameters set, and, and I think you know, it's, it's difficult to determine. I think the church helps. I think you have to uh, uh, wrestle through this one. Then I think once you, once that's the case, you can move into a philosophical arena and say, you know what they've done? They've articulated here something that is true in Christianity, and it's not a bad way to put it if I want to communicate with them, or not a bad way to put it if I want to say this in a particular way. Yeah. So, for example, uh, this may not be the best example. I'm, I'm not using it, but it's just one I'm familiar with. The reason I use possible world semantics and reasons for faith is because it's sort of buzzing out there, and people are talking about it. And, uh, and, and the notion of essentialism has kind of come up again in the ranks. And as far as I could tell, nobody's talking about that relative to who God is. So I thought, well, this might be a good way. If we're going to talk about the subservience of philosophy to theology, maybe we can use some of the current lingo to get at who God is relative to creation and talk about God as the only one who is necessary and everything else being contingent and things like that, which is not what's done as much in essentialism. So I think you ground your theology, you get that, and then whatever philosophy's doing, you can, you can use that as long as in no, at no point it undermines the theology that you're setting forth. Yeah. And, you know, that's a balancing act. You've got to be careful on that one. Mm-hmm. That's very helpful um, and very uh, timely as well. There's been many of these uh, debates and discussions of late. And so uh, we hope that we're able to provide a helpful overview of uh, the Clark and Van Til controversy and also issues of divine knowledge and human knowledge in the doctrine of Scripture. Um, and there are many resources available where you, the listener, can go and uh, 
find and read more. Um, the, the two Bonson books we've mentioned today, uh, Van Til's Apologetic, but also Presuppositional Apologetics, Stated and Defended. And, of course, you would serve yourself well to read Bovink, uh, Warfield, uh, many of these men on uh, the doctrine of God and also especially uh, the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, Westminster is available online. As we get closing, I need to point you where to go. You can visit Westminster at wts.edu as well as facebook.com slash Westminster online and youtube.com slash Westminster online. And Reformed Forum is available at reformedforum.org. There you'll find links to all of our sites, including our YouTube page, Facebook page, etc. We're all over the place. So visit us online and you'll be able to watch and listen and uh Provide your feedback so we can make these shows better and uh, address the issues that are pressing you and pressing your church. So thank you so much for your listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.